We're a couple weeks into a series called You Are Not a Machine about work and rest. And um, all of us do that. We spend 100% of our time either working or resting. There's not a third category in there. And so last week we talked about the character of God, that the first thing we learn about God in Genesis is that he worked. In the beginning, God created. He's a worker. In the beginning, there was work. Sometimes we think that work is a curse because we have a really difficult relationship with all the forms of work in our life. It hurts. It's not as productive. There's a toil in it. We get exhausted from it or we don't like it. But the reality is is, is, um, the Bible opens with before uh, the fall came when there was a good and perfect creation. Without sin and evil, there was God-given work. Not because we're slaves, but because that's who God is. He works. Today we're going to build on that. Um, and we're going to learn that not just that God works, but that he's actually looking for junior partners in his kingdom. He's looking for co-workers. Um, there's this great quote by Ben Witherington III. How's that for a name? He says, the Bible is by no means just about God working. It is also about God's people working. And about their participation in work that God sees as good, that he endorses, and indeed participates in. We all have different forms of work, and I want you to think broadly about work, not just in the paid versions of work, because you may be retired, or you may be, you know, independently wealthy, and you may not work for money, but you still work. Um, You know, if you're a grandparent, while grandkids are a reward, they're also work. Um... Uh, if you're in school right now, and you may, maybe you don't have a job per se, but you know, school is work. There is work you got to put into that. If you're raising a family, kids are work. If you're married, marriage is work. Even if you're single, being single is work. Getting gas in the cart is not effortless. It's for getting groceries. Uh, even scheduling for H-E-B to deliver groceries to you. If you do that, that's even work, and it's causing someone else to work. So we spend um, so much of our time doing work In all the seasons of our life, whether it's paid or unpaid, in our church there's work. This morning, someone showed up and unlocked the doors and made coffee and turned things on and changed batteries and got kids' rooms ready. That's all work, right? I mean, no one's getting paid for it. There are rewards in heaven, but it's all work. In gospel community, that's work. Spiritual formation, prayer is work. You know, all these things require some effort and it's doing some things. So we all have different types of work and there's work that God's called us to and there's work that God hasn't called you to. You just, maybe you just pay attention to the worry or the anxiety or the stress inside of you and it might be an indicator of whether God has prepared that work for you and called you to it or whether you're beaten down a path that he has no intention of you going down but it's your will and you're going to white knuckle it and that, that might be a clue whether God has given you that work. Even children have work. You know, we're teaching our, our boys how to work, like take out the trash Put your plate in the, in the dishwasher. Don't hit your brother. All those things are work. Our main text is going to be in Ephesians 2 today. But before we get there, I want to show you a verse in 1 Corinthians 3. Um, this is a great uh, section. Um, there's a little bit of division that's a, that has risen in the Corinthian church. And there's a little bit of celebrity pastor culture that crept up, not just in our day with social media, but also in Corinth, because there were some people who were really fans of Paul, and they said, we're with Paul, we're team Paul. And there were some people who were like, well, we really love Apollos. And so Paul has to speak into this division, 
And he teaches on the nature of how ministry is even done, and I would even expand it past ministry. Uh, ministry. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but it's God who gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. And here's the point, for we are God's fellow workers, right? We are, you are God's field, God's building. So you are God's field, you are God's building. God's doing a work in you. He's doing a work in the field that is you. He's doing a work in, you know, his, I love that the image that the church is God's building, but then he's also doing work through you. We're his co-workers. The, the word uh, fellow workers is good, and I like that. I wanted to, I'd like to distinguish it a little bit differently. Have you seen The Greatest Showman? Uh, my kids love that movie, and they watch it over and over. And there's a, there's a scene in there when um, Barnum and Bailey are singing at the bar back and forth, and there's a very end of the song where um, uh, Bailey says, you, just ha- you now have a junior partner. And then what does Barnum say? We're an overpaid apprentice, <laughs> you know? And, and that, that phrase, I, when I heard that while we were driving to Colorado for 15 hours and over and over, that movie played a million times, this phrase, junior partner, st- stood out to me because this is what God calls us into. We are junior partners with the greatest entrepreneur of the universe. We're not equal partners, and we live our lives as if God is the junior partner. We have this dream, and we're going to go do this, and God better come along and help us. And often, our will is not aligned with God's will, and there's a lot of, but I wanted that job. I wanted that family. I wanted this version of the American dream, and, and maybe that wasn't God's dream. But we often think God's a junior partner, but no, no, no. We're his fellow workers. In reality, we're junior partners. We are... Uh, I wouldn't, we are overcompensated apprentices because he's that generous that he would give us more than we need to be his disciples and to be his apprentice. Let that sink in. How is God calling you to be his junior partner in his enterprise, the kingdom of heaven? When we don't get clarity on that, it is destructive to our bodies and our souls. I grew up in church. I was the good church kid. I was born on Thursday night. On Sunday, I was in the nursery a couple days later. And uh, I grew up in the same church for 21 years. At 15, my first job was being the junior janitor. I was, in, I was like the third string janitor who came in at the hours no one wanted. Um, at 15 in the same church, me and Shari met in that church. We got married in that church. When I was 18, I started working as a graphic designer in that church. And when I, I did my apprenticeship in that church, and at 21, I got hired on staff full-time in that church. And I spent my whole life at 20, from 0 to 21 in this church, my whole life revolving around it. And there's something that, that happened subtly. And, and I want to emphasize that it was subtle because I would have never taught it. I didn't hear it. And, I, and if you said I believed it, I would not have agreed. But functionally, somewhere from zero to 21, something happened. I began to believe that because of my good behavior as being a good church kid and by being a good worker for, in the ministry, that because of those two things, God loved me. Now, what, uh, which is not the gospel message, the crazy thing about that subtle belief is that you have to believe the inverse, which means that if you don't behave and if you do not work for God, 
then he doesn't love you as much, right? And so because I was raised to be a perfectionist, I'm a recovering perfectionist, I was um, really riddled with the fear if I did not um, behave in a certain way and that if, if my work for God wasn't good enough, then he wouldn't accept me and love me. What ended up happening is by age 26, I was burnt out both physically and spiritually. I, one day I woke up when I was 26 after um, almost a decade from since I was 18, so about eight years of working 70 or 80 hours a week trying to be a good Christian and trying to be a good worker in the ministry. I woke up one day at 26 depressed. My body, there's something wrong. I couldn't get out of bed. And after a season, ended up in a counselor's office asking for medicine so I could feel normal. And all I knew is, I don't think 26-year-olds are supposed to feel like this. I'm supposed to be Superman, but my body had hit a point because physically, the 80 hours a week over eight years had, uh, had its toll. I was working like I was a machine. I was working like I was a slave or a servant. Spiritually, I was exhausted and burnt out as well. My love for the Lord, my love for people was gone because I was on this never-ending treadmill of trying to earn my way into God's love. Now, I would have never told it to you like that. I would have never admitted to it. But that was, the f that was how I was functioning. Um, in the midst of that deep pit, I was studying Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. And God changed my life. Um, he reoriented how I view salvation. And he also reoriented how I view work. And quite literally, the results of that work of um, walking through Ephesians 1 and 2 led to the dream of this church. And uh, I've been working at this uh, for eight years. And I feel as strong and as healthy physically and spiritually as I ever have. Not burning out. Not, I don't feel like even close to burning out. Because it's God's good work that he's called me to do. And I would have never found that or even thought to seek it out had it not been for Ephesians 2. Now, some people have favorite verses, and I never had a favorite verse. John 3, 16, how about that one, you know? Uh, I, never, I never had one. Ephesians 2, 10 is my favorite verse because, not that it's awesome, I mean, it's awesome, but because God used it to transform my life. And so if you don't have a favorite verse, I want to offer, maybe you could borrow mine, and I know it's Karen's favorite verse. So would you turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10? It's page 976 if you want to use one of the hardback Bibles around you. We're going to read this verse. It's probably not going to mean much to you. Then we're going to put the car in reverse, and we're going to go into chapter 1. We're going to put on our snorkel gear. We're going to do a deep dive around the reef that is Ephesians 1 and 2, and then I hope by the end of our time when we reread verse 10, it will impact you with all of the force and momentum and wonderful grace and delight as it did me. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Uh, there is, the word here for workmanship is, the Greek word is poema. 
Let me put that on the screen here. I think we got it. Poema, the Greek word. What does that word look like in the English? Come on. Poem is not a trick question. It looks like poem because it's where we get the English word poetry. Poema. Uh, this is incredible. We are God's poetry. We are his beautiful rhetoric. We are his prose. Uh, the message translation says we are his masterpiece. We are his work of art. When I learned this, a Pinterest had just become a thing, and I thought, oh, it's cute. You know, we are God's Pinterest project, right? But, but you are more than a reclaimed palette painted white and nailed onto a wall. Yeah, I would say you are more than God's Pinterest project. You are his masterpiece. We see the same language in Genesis 2, that, that God makes the heavens and the earth by saying, let there be light with his words. But then he stoops down and makes man and woman with his hands and with his breath. And he fashions and molds um, human a kind man and woman with his hands because we are his workmanship. Isaiah 64 verse 8 has the same idea. Isaiah says, but now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. And you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. We are his workmanship. Um, I want you to... Uh, if we look at verse 10, it says, it starts with the word for. And when I read the word for, I think of, well, for what? And so I back up and I go well, to the beginning of chapter 2. And when I start reading the beginning of chapter 2, what word do you see at the beginning of chapter 2? And. Oh, and what? And so I back that up and I go uh, to the next break, which is uh, verse 15. And it says, for this reason. And then you think, well, for what reason, right? And then you need to go up to verse 3. Now, it would take me actually weeks to get through verses 3 through 14. But for the sake of time, we're just going to start in verse 15, knowing full and well, if you want the full story, you need to back up to the very beginning. For, I think you want to have lunch today, so we're not going to do that. We're going to start at verse 15. And, and I'd like for you to follow along. I'm going to do kind of like what maybe a literary teacher would do, which is I'm going to cut some of this out and then throw it to you. And you might not understand it at first, um, but there's no way to understand it unless someone does this to you. And uh, if at some point your head starts to hurt, welcome to Pauline literature. Um, have you ever been, uh, just as a warning, have you ever been to a buffet and you see somebody and, like they, and it all looks good? And so they pile onto their plate, all onto their plate, and they walk by with like three plates on. That's what this text is. It's just pile on top of pile on top of pile, when in reality, you really needed that much. So we're going to look at the stack, and it's just, I'm going to try to just we go through it. And I think if you can get a grasp of the wonderful riches that are in here, Ephesians 2.10 will probably become your favorite verse too. Thank you, Jesus. All right, verses, uh, start in verse 15. For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. Uh, sometimes I'll hear people say, I love the Lord, but I, I can't stand his church. You should read this verse because you should have faith in the Lord and love all the saints. That is a biblical thing to love your fellow brother or sister in Christ. That was not even in the notes. You're welcome. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, this is an incredible prayer. Um, and I, I would love for you to um, know that there are prayers in the scripture that have great weight when you pray them, and this is certainly one of the top ones. Here's the prayer. That the, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, 
may give you. So this is a gift, okay? This is not something we earn or not, and this is not even something we intellectually arrive at because we're smart and academic. What we're going to unpack here is a gift from the Father of glory. What's the gift? That he may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. This is a gift. This is what Paul's prayer is, that you would be given a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus, okay? Here's verse 18. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Anyone remember the popular song in the 90s? Open the eyes of my... Right here, this is it. Open the eyes of my heart. I almost sang for you. And actually, it says more than that. It says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Sometimes the eyes of your heart can be open. I know people, their eyes are open, but they can't see it yet because one of the Spirit's main jobs is to shine light on the truth of Jesus Christ and enlighten. If you've ever had to take a picture of something in the dark, you, you can't unless you have a flash. And what does the flash do? The flash shines light. It reflects and light enters in your iris or into your eyeball or into the, the lens of the camera. It enlightens. And that's the work of the Spirit there. And so this, is, this is what he's praying for, that the spirit of wisdom and revelation that, that's given to you would do the work of a, a camera flash, that it would enlighten, that the eyes of your heart would have light entered in, enlightened so that you would know three things. This is incredible. I'm going to try not to get happy here. That you would know first the hope to which he has called you. There are a lot of people in our world who are walking around hopeless and they have no idea that they have been called to an incredible bright future, hope in Jesus Christ. They don't know it. And this is the prayer of Paul that because of the grace of the Father through Jesus, because of the, the enlightening work of the Holy Spirit, all by grace, that we would be able to know that there is a hope. That's the first thing. The next thing, the hope that he has called you to, to the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. He's not a deadbeat dad. Ninth, verse 19, the third thing. And third, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. Does your head hurt yet? He is at the buffet piling these things on, right? I want to just focus on that third one. I mean, there's so much in the first and second one, but the third one is what catches my attention because it has the word work in there, and we're talking about how God works. The immeasurable greatness of his power. How do you know something that you can't take a tape measure to because it's immeasurable? This is the mystery of God's grace and his power, that Paul is praying that the Father of glory would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ, that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened because of the flashlight of the Holy Spirit, that you would know your hope, that you would know the riches of your inheritance in the saints, and that there is this immeasurable great power coming towards you that sometimes we're not even aware of. Now, here's where he goes off to the side for a second, okay? And he's going to describe this immeasurable great power. And this is where my heart really gets excited. Read verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might or strength? And then he's going to describe that great power that's immeasurable. It's the same power, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead 
and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. In that one sentence, what he says is, I want you to know, because of the work of the Holy Spirit, that there is this great immeasurable power coming towards you, and it's the same power that was there on Resurrection Sunday, the same power that was there on the ascension, is the same power that brought the dead Christ back to life and seated him in heavenly places. The crux of human history, the crux of our belief. The same power. Like one of you got it. <laughs> the same power that causes us to sing on Easter Sunday, 2,000 years later, every Sunday, and there's a whole economy of eggs and candy and like pastel dresses because the same power that did that is towards you. May the Lord enlighten the eyes of our hearts so we could see it. Now here's how far it raised him. He's gonna, oh, well, how far is the heavenly places? Verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And here's kind of the responsibility, the work that Christ has. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Is your head hurt yet? <laughs> this is a lot. You know, Paul, maybe make a couple of trips to the buffet. Don't put it all on one plate, but it's here. The Father of glory would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation that um, the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that you would know your hope, that you would know your riches in the saints, that you would know this immeasurable great power that is coming towards you to believe. It's the same power that raised Christ from the dead, seated him in heavenly places, put him above all rule and authority, gave him the name that's above every name, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, not just then, but also now. He's also the head of the church, and the church is not this awful thing on the earth, but the church is meant to be this thing where all of the glory and fullness of God dwells and blesses all the earth. That is the prayer. And I want you to bookmark in your head verses 20. Because we missed something because a publisher came in and said, let's put a number two right here. And if you're like me, you've probably read Ephesians 1 and then you close the book. And then later you come back and you open Ephesians 2 and you close the book. And if you're not discerning, um, you might not know that this is just a letter written to Ephesus, and that Paul did not put in the heading and the number and the verses, and while I'm grateful for them because it helps my postmodern American mind to understand things, we can easily divorce the point made in chapter two from the incredible plate of buffet food that is stacked on, that's gluten-free, <laughs> in chapter one. There is a power that raised Christ from the dead. Christ was dead, but then he's raised to life. He's seated in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, above every name, for all the ages. You've got to remember that. Because chapter 2 starts with, and you were dead. And in Paul's mind, what he's doing is he's connecting Christ's resurrection with our resurrection. This is why he says, if Christ didn't rise, it's all useless. Christ was dead, chapter 2, and you were dead. And so all of the realities that we're going to read in verse 2 
have their connection in beginning to the work of God on the cross, on Golgotha, in the garden, on that um, great resurrection Sunday, and to the ascension, and after that. Has anyone seen the show The Walking Dead on Netflix? We have this idea. (laughs) Sydney's like, yes, sir, I love that show. (laughs) I tried to watch it once and got scared of the zombies, and I admit, I did not watch it anymore. Uh, I'm weak. I got scared of Scream, which is like not a scary movie at all. And and so I I don't do scary movies. I don't do scary stuff. But um, uh, we kind of, in our culture, we have this fascination with zombies, right? Like their zombies are dead, but they're walking. And here in Ephesians 2, 1, we see zombies because we see dead people walking. And this is how Paul said, he says, uh, we were the walking dead. Verse one, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You see what he's saying here? It's like, at the end of the day, you're spiritual zombies. Some people like to say, oh, yeah. well, people are just inherently good. I hear, I hear that a lot in the world. Well, you know, there's good people, and then there's like the evil people who do mass shootings and all this stuff. And, and the Bible would say right here, we are all zombies. We are all dead and walking in our sins, trespasses. We're following the course or the path of the world. We're following the prince of the power of the air. That's the spirit that we're under that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And in case we want to separate ourselves from the sons of disobedience and all of the really, 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 really evil people. In verse 3, he clarifies, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And just in case we weren't sure, he says, because we were by nature that way. We were by nature children of wrath, children of evil, children of sin. And just in case we thought, well, maybe that's just a small portion, he says, like the rest of all mankind. And I first read this, I was like, someone give Paul a hug, because that's pretty dark. I believe it's true. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Okay, now I'm going to say something, and I'm not saying it to be cute, and I'm not saying it to be funny, and if you want to laugh, you can, but I'm not saying it to, to, to make you laugh. But in verse 4, this has to be the biggest but in the Bible. Because if verses 1 through 3 are true, then verse 4 is, but God. I mean, what a disjunction to put in here. Like it's bad. Everybody is a zombie and a bad one at that. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us. Not because we grew up in the church. Not because we vote a certain way. Not because we give or don't give. Not because we don't do drugs or have never done drugs. Or not because, no, no, no. Not because of anything we've done. We're not, the, the only stuff that we've done here is bad stuff. But God, rich in mercy, with the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, just making it clear, and watch the connection back to the end of chapter one, made us alive together with Christ. 
You see how he's tying this immeasurable great power towards you? Shows up right here. He made us alive together with Christ. And just in case some of us would get proud and think it was because of how good we were or because of the work we were doing for God, he says it was by grace you have been saved. By God's power. Um, sometimes people articulate God's grace as um, getting away with something. And that is not what the Greek word haris means. The Greek word haris, which is what we translate into grace, sometimes you'll, uh, we get the word charity from this, right? Uh, be, because it's like a transliteration of haris, C-H-A-R-I-S. And we get our word charity from the Greek word for grace. Charity is, is somebody who's strong doing um, the strength and power for someone who's weak. And so if you see a poor person on the street and they don't have the power to eat and you in your charity or in the strength of your wallet give them $10, you are charitable towards them. You are gracious towards them. The grace enabled and gave them the power to go get a sandwich. That's what grace is. Grace is God's power doing for us the thing we can't do, not you getting away with something. It is by God's grace or by God's great immeasurable power towards you that you have been saved. And then verse 6 he connects it again. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Do you see how if you read chapter one apart from chapter two, you, you can miss the connecting link here. There is this great immeasurable power that Paul is praying that the father of glory through the, the work of the Holy Spirit, that he would enlighten the eyes of your heart to know you have a hope, to know you have riches in the saints, to know that there's this great power coming towards you. It's the same power that raised Christ from the dead, same power that seated him in heaven, the same power that put him above every authority to where he doesn't share jurisdiction with anybody, the same power that gave him the name above all names. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords, not only in that age, but also in all the ages to come. The same power that gave him as head over the church, which fills everything, that same power, while we were still sinners, while we were spiritual zombies in our sin, because of the mercy and great love of God, quickened our hearts, made us alive, seated us with Christ in heavenly places, and so that in the coming ages, he might show the riches of his grace and kindness towards us. Does it make sense to you yet, or should I belabor it more? <laughs> You probably would like to eat. All right, we'll go on. And just in case, again, anyone, any of us would take credit, verse 8, he reiterates, for it's by God's grace power. It's by the strength. It's by God's grace that you have been saved through faith. Again, this is not your own doing. <laughs> it's the gift of God, not the result of your works, so that no one can boast. Do you see how God's been working all along here? And then we get to my favorite verse, which I hope is yours soon. Verse 10. For we are his poetry. We are his workmanship. We are his masterpiece. We are his poema. Created in Christ Jesus not to just sit around and be trophy cases or to be trophies in a case, but he created us for good works because he's looking for junior partners. 
And I would read that and go, all right, let's get to work. I'm going to go do something. And, but we've got to keep reading. Those good works we were created for, who made them? God prepared them beforehand. And what do we do? We walk. I'm kind of tired just reading about all of the work of God here. And I'm really grateful that the only work that he's asking me to do in all of this is to take a walk. Growing up in church, what I was doing was sprinting a marathon, <laughs> thinking if I did these good works, God would love me. If I didn't do drugs, and if I didn't get drunk, and if I didn't sleep around, and if I was the good church kid, God would love me. And at 26, I hit the wall and burnt out spiritually and physically because the race was me sprinting. And then I discovered in Ephesians 2.10, that God is looking for junior partners, but the junior partners are not the major partners. They're not the primary partners. They're not even equal partners. The junior partners of God just find his grace and walk in it. That's all we do. A mentor of mine brought this to light to me years ago, and he said, you can only go where God's grace has gone before you. And when he's saying that, there's things in our life, and we have a lot of options, and we have free will, and we can do, make certain choices. And there are paths in which God has prepared, and by his grace, he has prepared good works. And then there are paths that he's not prepared, and his grace isn't in it. But we as humans, because we're stubborn sometimes, and we have a will, think, let me go over to this path, Sometimes we choose careers, sometimes we choose partners, sometimes we make all kinds of life um, choices and decisions, not because we first said, Lord, is this a good work that you prepared for me? But because it seems like that would be what the good American should do. We say yes to jobs because of the pay and not because God has called us to it and equipped us for it. You can only go where God's grace has gone before you. He said on, to, on, on top of that, he said, going where God's grace hasn't prepared is like walking through the Amazon jungle barefisted with a machete. You might be able to get through, but you're, it's going to be slow. You're going to get cuts and scrapes, and you're going to be exhausted by hacking this machete. And I wonder if some of you, in whatever domain of your life you want to apply this lesson of work, do you feel like you're in the middle of the Amazon jungle where just, you're, just, you're tired of hacking? My question would be, is that the good work that God has called you to do? Do you see yourself as a junior, submitted, humble partner with God, asking him, Lord, what are you doing, and how can I join it? Or are you trying to get God to bless your dream? Tim Keller says, when we work, we are as those in the Lutheran tradition often put it, the fingers of God, the agents of his provisional love for others. This understanding elevates the purpose of work from making a living to loving our neighbor. And at the same time, it releases us from the crushing burden of working primarily to prove ourselves.
For so much of my early life, I was working to prove myself. And by God's grace, because of this truth in Ephesians, I now work because I'm already approved. Last week, I, uh, I, I didn't preach a good sermon. I, 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 I wasn't as clear as I wanted to be, and afterwards, I felt awful. And I had to remind myself of the gospel. God doesn't love me because of how I, how I can preach or how I can teach. And I had to come to this terms like, do I really believe that if I blow it, he'll still love me? And I, and I have to remind myself daily, yes, because I'm his workmanship. I'm his poema. Not because he needs me, not because I can do something for him, simply because he's rich in mercy and he loved me with a great love. I wonder if some of you are under the crushing burden of trying to work in order to find significance or find riches or find pleasure or for a certain standard of living you want. Eventually, you hit the wall. On some level, something breaks down. One of... um, my friend told me a story recently that drove this home, and it's the last thing I'll sh- share is he, um, his wife uh, wanted a bookshelf, and for some reason, instead of going to Ikea and buying particle board in a cardboard box, he decided, I'm going to go make one. So he went to Home Depot, and he bought some, some supplies, and he came and he measured, and he kind of prepared and designed this bookshelf that would fit right where it needs to go. And then he took everything out into the garage and made the cuts and got everything ready. And he set up shop in the driveway to assemble this bookshelf, right? And as he was doing it, he, and he didn't have a nail gun, he didn't have a screw gun. He just had like a hammer and nails. And he's out there and he's hammering this bookshelf together. And his son comes along, who's like maybe six or seven, and sees that dad's out in the driveway with a hammer and nails and tools and wood. And so the son goes to his room, and he finds his little box. And as dad's working, hello, he pulls out his little play school hammer. And he comes out with dad in the driveway, and he wants to help. And so Michael, because he's a good dad, takes a few nails, and he goes to the very end, and he, he like, sets them where they're just in, like, quarter of an inch. And then he goes back to the middle and is working, And so his son comes, and the image is father and son, big strength and little strength, out in the driveway, working on something that Michael has already dreamt and prepared and was at the really tail end of. And so his son is at the end of the bookshelf, and he's just hammering away as hard as he can, but as you know, this thing ain't driving that 16-penny nail into the wood. And then a cardinal flies by, and the son like, turns and is watching the cardinal. And when he's not looking, Michael reaches over with his hammer, and he gives it a couple of taps. And he goes back. And his son doesn't notice. His son comes back, and his son starts hitting. And he's like, well, it's working. And, and then like, uh, he needs a snack. And so he goes inside to get a juice box. And while he's inside, Michael reaches over. He taps it in a little bit more. Son comes back out. Oh, yeah. It's just... Son needs to go potty. He goes inside. Michael taps it, and then this pattern goes on for 30 minutes, and eventually, Michael drives all the nails all the way through, with his son not even knowing how it's happening, but is thinking at six years old that this thing was working, and his arm's hurting, and he's like, yeah, this effort, it's, I did it, 
they, um, they install it, and then Michael calls Karen over, and says, hey, do you like it? And the little boy says, mommy, look at the bookshelf I made you. <laughs> Who made it? Who designed it? Who prepared it? That's Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship. We are his beloved child. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, for the shelves that he already prepared and designed and pre-cut and measured and painted. All we have to do is come out into the driveway with our play school hammer and spend time with our Abba Father and do whatever we see him doing. And if we see him hammering nails, we come and we bring our toy hammer and we say, we want a hammer too. But we know that it is not Paul who planted or watered or Apollos, but it's God who drives the nails in because we are his workmanship. We are junior partners. Some of you, I want to encourage you because you are out there with your play school hammer, keep hammering away. Some of you, you're inside on video games and you have no idea that you have an Abba Father out in the driveway who wants to spend time with you and has work for you and he'll do all the heavy lifting, but the invitation is to grab your toy hammer, put down the distraction, and come outside and be a junior partner with the best entrepreneur of the universe who happens to be your Abba Father, your Heavenly Father, your Daddy. For some... You don't have this hammer. You've got a five-pound dead blow hammer, and you're making a mess. <laughs> and you're destroying the yard, or you're destroying, and, and what God is saying is, put the hammer down. You grabbed the wrong one. <laughs> it is not you, Paul, who does it. It's not you, Apollos. I give the growth. Put the hammer down that causes a lot of pain and a lot of destruction because you are the workmanship, you are the junior partner. And for some of you, God is calling you to repent of your, 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 your hard-headedness and your stubbornness and your will to do what you want to do in your way and in your time. And he's saying, put down the real hammer. You're six. <laughs> Grab this one. We were talking about this at our gospel community. And... Um, one of our members was praying, and she, at the very end, she said, just led by God, she said, we're going to stop praying for results, and we're going to start praying for opportunities to be faithful. Oh, I'm still reeling from that, because I often, even knowing Ephesians 2, pray for results. God, I want this to happen. And it's, it's one thing to pray for results, and it's a whole other thing to pray for, God, would you just show me the opportunity to come out into the driveway with my toy hammer and to be faithful? Those are two different prayers, and they end into two different places. One has peace. The other has anxiety. In the beginning, God worked. But he calls all of us, in whatever stage of life we are, in whatever capacities we have, to join him in the world, at your job, in your family, in your neighborhood, in this church, in your community. I hope that maybe this week you'll start to look for the path that God's already prepared. And you can make the choice. You can go through the jungle with a machete, or you can go on a walk. And I hope that you find the joy 
of going on a walk with the maker of the mountains. There's nothing like it. Let's pray. Lord, more than understanding what we need is your spirit to shine light. And that's just our prayer. Whatever the situation is, wherever we are, whether we're burnt out, whether we're brokenhearted, distracted, discouraged, or just on cruise control doing fine in another area, Lord, I ask that your spirit would come and enlighten the eyes of our hearts. Father, I pray for those who um, are still dead, walking in their sins. Lord, I ask that in this moment, you would do the gracious thing, that you would draw a circle around them and you would invade them by your mercy and your great love. And just as you raised Christ from the dead, I pray that your immeasurable great power would begin to come towards them and that you would raise them and that you would make them alive even if they have questions, even if they have doubts, even if they have objections, in spite of all of their excuses, Lord. I pray that your mercy and your love would be greater than the excuses or the sin, the trespasses, the brokenness, the hurt, the trauma. God, I pray today that the greatness of your power would extend from your throne in heaven to this little warehouse. Lord, we thank you for being present. I feel you here. I feel your mercy. I feel your peace. And we know, God, you have lifted us into your lap. church.